This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to a couple openings of Scripture with me this morning. Romans chapter 10 and Mark chapter 11. I want to start in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Well, back up to verse 8, I guess. Paul said, But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus giving us what I believe is the most concise description and explanation of the operation of faith, said in verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Other translations say have the faith of God, which we would have to understand means the God kind of faith. He says, Have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you what things soever you desire. When you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Now notice in both of these passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 10 and Mark chapter 11, it talks about believing with the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here he said, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. If he's talking about doubting in your heart, then he's got to be talking about believing in your heart too, doesn't he? But shall believe in his heart, we, may add, we might add. Believe in his heart, those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. What does believing with the heart really mean? What does believing with the heart really mean? Now, Jesus told us, or told them and gave a record to us, that believing with the heart is the key to operating in your authority here on the earth. By that I mean for your words to come to pass. He told, Paul told us by the Holy Ghost in Romans chapter 10 that it was with the heart that we believe unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, which certainly shows us that it's the operation of the heart, faith of the heart, that brings about salvation and everything else that it entails. All the things that Jesus bought and paid for us with his precious blood. So what does it mean to doubt, to doubt with the heart? What does it mean to believe with the heart? What's he talking about the heart? I want you to look with me over to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul said, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Now notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, Jews aren't limited to bloodline anymore. He's saying being a Jew under the new covenant, and he's writing to Gentiles to tell them how to access the things that God has provided for them. He says this, being a Jew is not about being born as a literal descendant of Abraham, but it's an attitude and a position of your heart. You ever had the devil 
tell you that certain promises were just for the Jews? He's right. But if you believe in Jesus, you're a Jew. That's what Paul's saying. So don't let the devil talk you out of what belongs to you by saying it only belongs to the Jews, meaning the nation of Israel. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. He's identifying what the heart is. He's saying the way you become a child of God is by an action of your heart, an action of your spirit. So if he's going to interchange those terms, then we would have to understand that the same letter that he wrote to the Romans, I mean, just six, what is this, chapter two, eight? Math will start working here in a minute. Eight chapters later, when he talks about believing in the heart, he's got to be talking about the same thing he meant in Romans two, didn't he? So he's talking about with the spirit man believes. With the spirit man believes. Faith in the heart is believing in your spirit. Now the Bible tells us, Paul uses the term inward man versus outward man to distinguish between our flesh, our bodies, and our spirits. Peter uses the term hidden man of the heart. He's saying there's somebody on the inside. Now, we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul identifies by the Holy Ghost the three-part makeup of man. He said, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man is a spirit. By definition, he would have to be because we know that God is a spirit. And man's made in the image of God. So if God is a spirit, man has to be made in the, uh, in the same manner as a spirit being. We know that man has a soul, which is defined in the scripture as the mind, the will, and the emotions. And he lives in a body. This outward man is not the real you. People sometimes ask, well, we know each other in heaven. But do you know each other now? You'll still be you in heaven. That's deep, isn't it? You will still be you in heaven. In the Old Testament, God spoke through Ezekiel the prophet. Let me read to you verses 25 and 26 out of Ezekiel 36. He said, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Notice that verse 27. He said, I'll put my spirit in you. You remember there was a time in, in uh, Jesus' earthly ministry where he was explaining to his disciples spiritual things. And he was using natural terms and natural examples to show them the truth. And he said something about wine and wineskins. You remember what he said? He said, nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. Because the, the skins will burst and the wine will be spilled. Well, that's a spiritual reference or an example of the things that happen to us in spirit when we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. 
Notice the first thing is he puts a new heart or a new spirit in you. And then he puts his spirit in your spirit. In other words, you'd have to be born again to experience the presence of God in any manner whatsoever. Moses in the Old Testament asked to see the face of God. God said, you can't look upon my face and live. So he made a way for God, for Moses to see God as he passed by. He put him in the cleft of the rock. He put his hand over his, uh, his being to protect him. But as he walked by, God said he would be able to look on his back. That's an indication to us of the value, the true value of being born again. Now, when I was born again, I'm sure the same thing's true for you when you were, we may have been aware or conscious of a change that took place, but we didn't know exactly what that change was. I don't think anybody's ever been born again and really knew what it was going to do before they got it. I don't think that's possible, but I might be wrong on that. I think it's certainly the case for the majority of us, though. We may know of a change that takes place, but we didn't know what that change was. But the Bible says that that change was that we, the real person on the inside, was recreated instantly, recreated, and the Spirit of God was placed within us. And except that our spirits had been changed and made new, the Spirit of God could not come within us we'd have been destroyed by the attempt. Paul wrote to the Hebrews, I believe it was Paul that was the author of the book of Hebrews, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to us that we've come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai, not the place of the law, but the place of the new covenant. Mount Zion is where we've come to under an innumerable company of angels and to the Spirit's of just men made perfect. The spirits of just men made perfect. That's you. When you accepted Jesus into your heart, you were made a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. And the Spirit of God was placed within you because you were made complete. That's what the word perfect means that Paul uses over in Hebrews. The spirits have just been made perfect or made complete. There's not one thing lacking in you or me. Now, the people that know us may disagree. Or we may not be living up to what we have. But there's not one thing missing. Not one. Join us for our Christmas Eve candlelight service with Pastor Mike Webb. Christmas is a special time here at Foothill Family. We would love to see you tonight for our special Christmas Eve celebration where we celebrate the birth and the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We hope you can join us this Christmas. Again, that's the Christmas Eve candlelight service at 6 p.m. December 24th at Foothill Family Church. For more information, go to www.mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. So we see that our spirits have been made new. We see that our spirits have been born again because we believed with the heart. Now, clearly the heart, the word heart cannot be talking about the organ in your body that pumps blood. 
You couldn't believe with the physical heart, the organ called the heart in the middle of your being. You couldn't believe with your heart any more than you could believe with your nose. So he's got to be talking about something else. Look over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter's giving instructions to the wives. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands. That's verse 1 of 1 Peter 3. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. The word conversation does not mean speech. It means manner of life. So he's telling women that are married to unsaved husbands, which you would understand would be a, um, a big deal back in the days, the early days of the church. Because nobody knew anything about God. Nobody knew anything about being saved. And so people married for whatever reasons, whatever natural reasons they married, and then one, either the husband or the wife, Paul indicates, uh, Peter indicates this, mostly the wives, usually the wives first. They'd get saved and their husbands wouldn't be. So that would create a real issue, a real problem. Now the instruction to us in this present day in the church age is different. The instruction to the, to the wives and the husbands is totally different. It's not like go marry whatever, whoever you want to and let's hope for the best. The Bible says be not unequally yoked and that's the first thing that that's speaking to is spiritually. You and I shouldn't be hooked up with people that are in a different spiritual position than ourselves. Somebody coined the term missionary dating. Dating an unsaved person hoping to get them saved. Good luck with that. It's certainly not what the Bible instructs. So he's giving wives instruction. Paul or Peter is giving wives instructions by the Holy Ghost of how to win unsaved husbands, unsaved loved ones. And he says it should be through their manner of life, the way they conduct themselves. He goes on and he says, while they behold your chaste conversation, again, that's manner of life. The word conversation means manner of life. Coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Now the church has misinterpreted uh, a lot of scriptures over a lot of years, but I don't know of any that's more egregious than this one. There are church groups that still, certainly in times past, maybe more so in times past, but still today, say that women shouldn't wear makeup and they shouldn't wear jewelry and so forth. Well, if that's true, then why isn't all the verse true? Why should they wear clothes? <laughs> so Peter says, don't worry only about the outward appearance. He's not saying it's wrong to put on makeup or wear jewelry or clothes or whatever. He's just saying, don't make that the, the main focus. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. Now notice that phrase, the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. Well, we know what hidden means. Hidden means unseen. See, I don't see the real you when we interact here on the earth. I see the body you live in. But that's not the real you. And you don't see the real me. Paul, uh, Peter said, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. He identifies what the hidden man of the heart is. He identifies how we should adorn ourselves. Now, I, I personally, certainly this applies to marriage. 
Certainly it would apply specifically to Christian women married to unsaved husbands. And he said the qualities of that woman should reflect meekness and quietness. But folks, I don't believe it should just be limited to that. I think we should all be meek and quiet. I can't see why it would be of greater price in the sight of a greater value in the sight of God for it to be a woman in an unsaved marriage than it would be for you and me in, uh, in anything and everything we do. Meekness just means to be teachable. Quiet just means to be quiet. The Bible says a lot about being quiet. It says even a fool is mistaken for a wise man when he keeps his mouth shut. I've taken a lot of comfort in that scripture. <laughs> but again, the main point is that Paul, or I keep calling him Paul Peter, is telling us that the heart is the spirit of man. Now turn with me over to John chapter 20. I want you to see some things about this hidden man of the heart. I don't expect I'm teaching you anything new this morning. And if I'm not, that's fine with me. My job is not to have something new every day. Let's start in verse 19. This is following Jesus' death on the cross. It said, then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled because of fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now let's stop right there. We'll continue in just a moment, but let's stop there for a moment. When Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost, if you'd been one of the group, would you have expected that he was doing something or communicating to you in a way that you were to receive something from him? It'd be kind of foolish for Jesus to breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Ghost, and nothing happened. They would have had every right to look at Jesus afterwards and say, what did you do that for? Why? What happened? Notice what he tells them about the Holy Ghost that, he, that they are to receive, or that they did receive when he breathed on them. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained unto them. Now, a lot of people look at that as the apostles had some kind of special power that we don't have to forgive sins. But that's not what retain and remit means. Sins are not retained or remitted because somebody breathes on you or somebody takes some special action towards you here on the earth. Your sins were forgiven, remitted literally, wiped away by the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is not affected by whether or not you like somebody or don't like them or remit their sins or don't remit their sins. We know that that takes place, salvation takes place by receiving Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. So he, he's simply saying that the gospel that they've been commissioned to preach will bring forgiveness of sins. He's telling them that their preaching of the gospel will bring remission of sins. When people reject the gospel that they're to preach, 
then their sins will be retained. In other words, their sins won't be wiped away because it's faith of the heart. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But I want you to draw your attention to something else about this. He's saying receive the Holy Ghost when he breathes on the disciples and says receive the Holy Ghost. He's speaking of the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins, which is salvation. So he's telling them and telling us that there's a work of the Holy Ghost in salvation. But there's also another work of the Holy Ghost that comes afterwards. See, these same guys are the ones that he tells to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost was poured out, which we know happened on the day of Pentecost and is described in Acts chapter 2. Well, if he's already breathed on and said, receive the Holy Ghost concerning remission of sins or salvation, what's he telling them to wait in Jerusalem for for another outpouring of the Holy Ghost? Wouldn't make sense and doesn't make sense until you understand that there are two works of the Holy Ghost. The first is the work of the Holy Ghost in salvation. So you got church, many church groups and church organizations that say, well, I've got the fruit of the Spirit, so I have the Holy Ghost. And in a sense, they're right. But there are others in the church that say, well, there's a work of the Holy Ghost that saves you, but then there's another work of the Holy Ghost to fill you like he demonstrated with the apostles. And they're right too. There's two works of the Holy Ghost, one in salvation or the remission of sins, and the second for service that comes on us by the baptism of the filling, infilling of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, but Thomas was one of the 12. He's called Didymus, and he was not with them when Jesus came. Then the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, Jesus was, or his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst of them, and said, Peace be unto you. Then said Jesus to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus answered him back and said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. Now let's draw your attention to a couple of things here. Thomas, who was not with the group when Jesus first appeared to him, would not accept the teaching or the, the preaching, the declaration. I don't know which word to use here. He didn't believe the other apostles when they said Jesus is still alive. He's been raised from the dead. Thomas says he will not believe. He doesn't say he can't believe. He says he will not believe. It's a choice. It's a determination. He says, I'm not going to believe until I see him. Now, I don't know if Thomas expected that Jesus would appear again and he would see him, or if he's just rolling the dice and saying, that's it, I'm not going to believe this no matter what. And if Jesus hadn't appeared to him again the second time, then he would have lived his life out here on the earth in whatever manner he did and missed heaven and found himself in hell for eternity. And notice it was because of his choice. Now you know as well as I do that Jesus didn't intend to lose any of his disciples. One of his prayers to the Father before he went to the cross is, I haven't lost any of those that you gave me except the son of perdition that prophecy might be fulfilled. He's saying Judas is the only one that I've lost 
and that was going to happen because you prophesied that and said that ahead of time. There had to be a betrayal take place in one of the group. So Jesus certainly didn't want to lose Thomas. But notice what he had to do to get him. He had to appear unto him. Let Thomas see with his physical eye. Let Thomas feel with his physical hands. And notice that Jesus calls that condition, that position, a condition of being faithless with the heart man believes. Thomas wouldn't believe. He refused. He said, I will not believe unless I can see him and touch him. Notice what Jesus says after Thomas finally accepts that he is alive. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Now, is there a blessing associated with seeing and believing? No. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. So if the condition of being faithless means having to see before you believe, then the condition of faith or believing with the heart has to be believing without seeing. There's no other way you could divine it. So believing with the heart, therefore, has to be defined, or at least a part of the definition of it, has to be to believe without physical evidence. That's the kind of faith that accesses the things of God. Now, we've got other examples in the Bible about this. In Numbers chapter 13, it tells us about the 12 spies that were commissioned by Moses to go into the promised land. They all came back with the same report of what they saw. They saw fruit that was more abundant than any place they'd ever been. They said, it is a land filled with milk and honey, just like God had told us through Moses. But 10 of them said, we can't take the land because of the cities that have walls around them and because of the strength of the people. Caleb and Joshua, the other two, said, we can take it because God says it's ours. You know as well as I do that the, the people believe the majority report. And so they wept. They considered themselves doomed, and they put themselves in a position where their words came to pass. They died in the wilderness over the next 40 years as Israel wandered around. What happened there? Well, the majority of them, 10 of the 12, were going by what they saw. And what they felt about what they saw. Two of them who saw the same cities, who saw the same walls around Jericho and maybe other cities as well, who saw the same strength or condition of the people that they'd have to dispossess to take hold of the land. They saw exactly the same thing, but they came to two different, uh, uh, two different positions or conclusions. Completely opposite from one another. The majority report said we can't do it because of what we saw. We saw them and their strength, and we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in comparison to them. The other two saw exactly the same thing, but they came to an opposite conclusion. They said we can do it because God said it's ours. They saw something different. They saw something different. The Bible tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. That means to walk according to what God's Word says and not according to what we see or feel. Don't let your feelings and don't let the circumstances that you see around you stop you from acting on God's Word. His Word's always true. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church.
This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. It doesn't matter how much the devil wants you to have trouble. Your words determine your own experience. The Bible never says we can keep trouble away from us, but it sure tells us we can conquer every bit of it. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.